Listen, today we are continuing this series called The Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11. Uh-oh, we're going to preach today. Already getting static. Here we go. Um, we're going to be Mark chapter 11. So if you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and get there. I mean, the first 11 verses here, um, if you're on version or you want to Google it, however you want to access God's Word today, we're going to unpack it together. But uh, we've been in this series for several weeks now, over a month, and uh, the idea was, hey, let's just take a trek through the Gospel of Mark leading up to Easter. And we said in the onset that the Gospel of Mark is unique because Mark, the, the author, the self-titled author, um, he, he's got a unique writing style. He writes very, very fast-paced, and he is chock-full of action. And Mark has this way of packing more content into fewer words than any other biblical author. And so it's just been like, bam, bam. It'd go like healing to they're traveling to preaching, to, uh, and, and you're just kind of all over the place. So for 10 chapters, Mark has covered three years of ministry, and then we get to chapter 11. There's only 16, so he spends the last six chapters detailing one week, one week, and it's Jesus' final week of his life. And so, so it's as if he slams on the brakes, and now he's going he's gonna to go almost day by day and hour by hour as we near the end of Jesus' life, okay? And, and so that's where we're at. So we're starting what is known as Passion Week. Now, I know that it's daylight saving time today. Easter's not next week, so don't start frantically like going to get eggs, though we do need those. But here's the deal. Uh, over the next several weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to unpack this final week, Passion Week. And it begins with what many of us know as Palm Sunday, or more specifically, the triumphal entry. This is Jesus's um, uh, like last ride into Jerusalem, and, and he's treated as a king. And so we're going to unpack that. So Mark chapter 11, it begins like this. We're going to start and then pause and we'll come back and wrap it all up. Okay, so this is how it starts. As they approached Jerusalem, and we're going to hit time out. We're going to hit time out, okay? As they approached Jerusalem, because I believe that the context of this is so rich for us to understand what Mark is going to dive into in a moment. So first we have to ask yourself, who are they? Who are they? Well, they specifically in this sentence refers to Jesus and his followers. Okay, so Jesus and his followers, they are on their way to Jerusalem, but they've been in Jericho. They've been in Jericho. In fact, Mark chapter 10, it wraps up with, with a miracle that Jesus does on his way out of Jericho, and he heals a blind man named Bartimaeus. You can jump back and read that if you'd like. But they're en route to Jerusalem for Passover. Okay, so they're heading there to celebrate like the most important holiday, the most important festival for Jews and for the, the nation of Israel. And they're on their way to Jerusalem for this party. Okay, but, but they're not alone. While they refers to Jesus and his disciples, it also includes a whole lot of other people because Jews from all around the region would converge. They would pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover. And so there's thousands and thousands of people making this trek to the holy city. And there's all this anticipated celebration. Okay, so, so the crowds are gathering and they're moving. And so they too are on that path. They're on that road to Jerusalem. And, and, and people who knew Jesus... 
people who followed Jesus, people who had heard his teaching, many of the people that we've read about, maybe people who were, who were miraculously healed by Jesus himself, they are en route. They are moving toward this party, toward the celebration. And, and, and many of these people, many of these people, they, they know what's to come because they do this every year, year after year, they converge for this party. And so to, to kind of like paint the picture though, I've read of this journey from Jericho to Jerusalem. I've not actually been there myself, but, but I've read about it and I've studied it and I've watched videos about it and looked at pictures and how the winding rocky desert roads from Jericho, the lowest city on the planet, sitting 800 feet below sea level, Okay, Jericho would lead to Jerusalem, which is some 3,000 feet above sea level. So it's almost a 4,000 foot climb from the valley to the top of this mountain where they're heading. And so it's literally, it's literally moving from this desolate desert kind of wasteland in the valley to this rich, lush vegetation full of life. And like I said, while I've not been there, I have a friend who has, and many of you know Julie, Julie Sexton. She's a fantastic Bible teacher here at Northeast, but she also co-leads this trip to Israel. And we've got one going this fall. If you're interested, you can check it out on the website. But I, I reached out to Julie this past week and I said, hey, what was it like? Like, like did you go? Did you make that trek? Did you, did you go from Jericho to Jerusalem? And, and she responded, these are her words. She went, and this is just from last fall, and she said, we drove this exact route. As the day was winding down, we drove through the desert to Jericho, and this is a picture of, of that moment. She said, we made the climb to Jerusalem. It was incredible. We were filled with joy. At this point on our trip, we had seen much of Israel, but we hadn't seen Jerusalem yet. Actually, just thinking about it has my eyes flooding. We were literally in the area where the Israelites had crossed the Jordan to enter the promised land. Jericho was before them, and beyond that, the desert leading to a mountain climb into Jerusalem. Moshe, the tour guide, was telling us about the Israelites crossing here. And then he started listing off other significant things that happened in this area. Elijah left in a chariot of fire. Elisha had done much of his ministry in this region. Then he casually says, this is the desert where Jesus was tempted by Satan. We all, like children, began to plead with him to have the driver stop the bus so we could just process for a minute. The bus stopped. I got off the bus, crossed the road, and stood in the desert. The sun was getting low, and I was trying to soak in the surroundings. Jesus had endured 40 days and nights in this region. He spoke the word of God back to Satan. He triumphed in the desert. Joshua had triumphed over Jericho. Elijah caught a chariot of fire. And then she continues, but, but for me, the climb up to Jerusalem was amazing. We were filled with excitement. We went from hot, dry air to this cool, fresh air. Coming out of the tunnel, I stood up on the bus to get a better view of the first glimpse of Jerusalem. All the chatter stopped on the bus and we just soaked in the moment of arrival. And it was better than I had ever imagined it would be. And so that's an account of, uh, of a visit, of a trek from Jericho to Jerusalem in 2021. But, but I want you to just think for a moment Think about that, going from the depth of a valley to the top of a mountain. That was the road that these people would take on their way to celebrate Passover, on their way to celebrate freedom. And it was the road that Jesus was on. Literally, he is walking this road with 
people like you and me, and they're all taking this together, but Jesus's path was a little different because it wasn't only a literal path, it, it, it also represented the path he was on from an eternal perspective, like from a valley to a mountain, from death to life. But, but for the Jews who would take this journey year after year, it, it, it also meant they were almost there. Kind of like they're rounding third and headed for home and they're on their way to celebrate their rich heritage and and to share stories and reconnect with people. And and they're on their way to to talk about to talk about like the the heroes of the past and, and to just enjoy each other's company as they honor and glorify God. And so all this excitement would build on the pilgrimage, and they were on their way to the place that God chose to inhabit. The place where through daily sacrifices, God promised Israel forgiveness, connection, and hope, and a future. And so in short, a great big family reunion was looming, like with singing and dancing and prayer and feasting and and cookouts and cornhole tournaments and everything else that's good about family reunions and picnics, right? Now, Now listen, I don't know if if you and your family have family reunions, okay? My family, we, we really don't have those, but we try to get together around Christmas or Thanksgiving, and so it's sort of like that. Maybe that's how it is for you, but several years ago, so my, my daughter just turned 10 years old. When she was a toddler, my wife and I, uh, we, we took her with us to Paducah, Kentucky, Western Kentucky, all right? It was new to me, my first time to the big city, okay? And so we go to Paducah, and we're going to this wedding, and... Um, and my wife, she's in it. And so this whole afternoon, she's fulfilling her bridesmaid's duties. All right, and so I take my little girl to the local park. And so we show up at this park and there's, there's tons of people here. It's this beautiful park, gorgeous Kentucky day, right? <laughs> Weather is silly, okay? But so we show up and we get to this park and there's all these people. So we're just playing, I'm pushing her on swings and we're giggling, you know, this kind of thing and just having fun, playing tag and um, and I, I see all these people, and I notice right over here this big pavilion, and then this lady, she kind of makes her way out from under the, the shelter. She hollers really loud. She says, hey, I think her name was Aunt June. She goes, hey, it's time for the family picture. And in this moment, I look around. I see everybody gathering up their kids, and, and bigger kids that take off running. People are making their way over there, and I thought, yes. And so I swoop up my daughter and as casually as possible, I just make my way right over to the family picture and I get as close as possible to this like big old proud grandma who was sitting right in the middle and maybe 60, 70, 80 folks are all gathering around. I kind of work my way right there and I'm right off her back left shoulder with my daughter and we're just cheesing right into the camera. And and, and so we're right there and then and then we, we take this picture and everybody starts to, to make their way to the tables. They say, hey, it's time to eat. And I thought, yes. And so I get my daughter a big old plate of, of fruit and I get you know pulled pork and this kind of thing. And we go around and we're reconnecting with folks who we've never met and they're oohing and aahing over how much she's grown and this kind of thing. And, and here's what I love. Is it somewhere in Kentucky over some beautiful, pristine mantle is a big old family portrait, and I'm right behind grandma. It's just not my grandma, right? <laughs> but listen, that, that picture of like reconnecting and the fun and the joy and the feasting, that's what was ahead for everyone on their way to Jerusalem for Passover. 
that they were on their way to celebrate. And, and so that, that fun, exciting atmosphere that families, that families would take part in, that's the anticipation. And they're getting closer. And so, and so understanding some of that context of what that trip would be like, but what would it be when you got there, it, it's gonna help us mark details what happens next. Continues, it says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. He does something very odd here. He sends two of them saying, go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Okay, so they're, they're making this trek. He says, hey, just pause real quick. Why don't you, uh, yeah, you and you, I want you guys to run up and you're gonna to come to this village. There's a little colt, like this little donkey, and nobody's ever ridden it. I want you to untie it and bring it to me. Like, what's he doing here? And then he says this, if anyone asks you, which I'm glad he you know, took this measure, why are you doing this? Like, why are you taking this, this colt? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. I mean, I love that Jesus is in the business of borrowing things, right? He's borrowing this cold, he's borrowing this donkey, but very soon he's just gonna borrow a tomb, right? And, and so they went and they found a colt outside in the street tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there said, what are you doing untying the colt? They answered as Jesus had told them, and so the people let them go, which is just kind of wild. But then when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And so we kind of have this odd moment here where they're on their way to Jerusalem, and Jesus calls a time out, and he says, hey, I want two of you go get this colt and bring it to me. And they bring it back to him, and, and, and they're leading it up to Jesus, and then Jesus does something significant. He sat on it. You see, this is significant because it's a regal move. It's an imperial action. It's something that, that royalty would do. And so take all the normal buzz of this journey and then throw in this maneuver by Jesus. And those a trip they'd made several times, many, many times, many of them since they were small children. This pilgrimage, this trip, this trek felt different. Like the mood of this pilgrimage had a next level layer of excitement present. Like, yes, it was Passover time. Yes, that meant freedom time. They're gonna celebrate God's faithfulness. But for those who followed Jesus, for those who knew Jesus, it was kingdom time. Like that's what was about to go down, that, that this was the moment they'd been waiting for anticipation wrapped with expectation. This trip was different because the destination, get this, wasn't just a party. It wasn't just to go there and celebrate the end game. In their minds was an uprising that, that the moment all their Passover dreams would come true, the moment that Jesus would prove his lordship overall by firmly establishing his kingdom here on earth. You, you, you see in their minds, one day, a climb through the Judean wilderness wasn't just gonna be a, an ascension to the top of a mountain. No, it was, be, it was gonna be scaling palace walls, arriving to the top of civilization, and, and, and they were hoping that one day they would witness the Messiah establish his reign once and for all. And, and in this moment, 
whether Jesus had arranged it with friends he had in Bethany ahead of time or if he decided in that moment to commandeer this coal. We, we don't really know, but it's a, it's a moment that's recorded in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But Matthew and John, they go a little bit further and they cite that this is actually prophecy being fulfilled. They record this. They say, this is from Zechariah 9, 9, where it says these words, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And so that's the picture. Jesus riding on a colt. But it's a little bit strange because... Because why not like a noble steed? Like why not like black beauty? Why not, why not like a stallion fashioned for homecoming? Like, a, like, you know, like royalty would come in? No, no, no. It's a colt that has never been ridden before. And, and I just think about that. Like this isn't even one of those Clydesdales from the Super Bowl commercials. This is a, a little colt. And Jesus is on it. And, and think, about, think about this, the pace. The pace is determined by Jesus. And everybody in all the hustle and bustle and the chaos, and Jesus is on this colt just going, and Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem on the back of this lowly, humble colt. And then verse eight, many people spread their cloaks on the road. Now, this is gonna be the pinnacle of our time together. So if you've been dozed off, man, lean in right here. Lean in. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. So we see the response and what this response communicates. What they're saying by laying their coats and their cloaks down. One of my favorite theologians, N.T. Wright, he says this, that this is the climax You don't spread cloaks on the road, especially in the dusty, stony Middle East for a friend or even a respected senior member of your family. You do it for royalty. I mean, Jesus is making his final ride into Jerusalem and coats and cloaks hit the ground. And hats and hoodies start coming off. And and it's not just for a good friend. It's not just for a good teacher. It's not for just this great, well-respected rabbi or this miracle worker. It's, It's not just to show honor. It's to give all glory for whom deserves. And so we see this in this moment that 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 you'd only take the shirt off your back and spread it on a filthy, rocky road in the desert for a king. And that's what happens. But it doesn't stop there. Mark goes on and he says that folks run to nearby fields. Matthew said that they cut tree limbs and they brought them. They start laying them out as making like this path. And John says that they waved palm branches as he rode into the city. And so, and so all of these people, they start together and they join in. And you can see how this happens, like a ripple effect. And, and it goes out and it's contagious and people see this and they're drawn to it. And, and, and the folks who, who, who recognize what's happening and they see that this is royalty and they start to act as such. And so they're laying their property down. They're laying what they have down for Jesus to be ushered into Jerusalem. But, but they start to chant, they start to, to, to sing and they have this rally cry as they're waving these branches. Many, of, m- many uh, folks consider that they were palm branches. So they're waving these 
As Jesus kind of comes down at his pace and they say these words, they shout, Hosanna, which is this Hebrew expression that that, that means save, but it's wrapped kind of in this urgent expectation, like save us now. And they're shouting this out, Hosanna. They continue, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Which my understanding is that blessed is he who comes. This, this phrase that we use, it was a common welcoming phrase, but, but in the name of the Lord. That, that's what they're saying, that, that save us, that you've come from God. And, and then right in the middle of this chant and rally cry, right in the middle of all the hype, we get this dangerous proclamation. They say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. You see, everyone there who's on their way to celebrate Passover would know this name. To them, this is the greatest name, the greatest leader, the greatest king that they'd ever known. This is the, the, the one that they would share stories about. They would gather every year and, and they would, they would be, be reminded that this, this King David, our greatest king ever, he wasn't always a king, he was a shepherd boy and he slayed a giant and they're sharing these. And, and, and they said, but he grew up. And Saul killed thousands and David tens of thousands. He was this this mighty warrior king. Everybody knew David, the greatest king of their past. But they're saying, listen, Jesus, he's not only one who comes from God as this change agent, but he also has the ability to save. But, But they're also proclaiming that Jesus is king and his kingdom will never end. He's gonna assume the throne of the greatest king of Israel's past but it will not end. He's going to assume the throne of his ancestor, David. And they say, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest heaven. And they're proclaiming this. And so what a scene. Think about it. We've got coats on the ground, palm branches are in the air. Hosanna is on their lips because the king is in their presence. And that's this moment. But, the crown that would soon be placed on Jesus' head wouldn't be made of jewels, rather it'd be made of thorns. That, that he came riding in like a rock star only days later to be betrayed and crucified. And, and he, wouldn't, he wouldn't go on to, to rise to sit on a man-made throne that week. No, he'd, he'd be pinned to a cross and mocked until he died. Or so they would think. Because they, they thought, they knew that death was eternal, but Jesus was about to flip the script because his kingdom is eternal. And, and so this kingdom that Jesus was ushering in, it was never ending. It wouldn't be built by brick and mortar. His reign wouldn't be represented by a mere dash between two dates. They could say, hey, this is when King David served from this date to this date. And that's his story, Jesus Jesus is the one by which the calendar gets its time from. His kingdom is eternal and it cannot be, it cannot be summarized by dates. That Jesus, Jesus goes beyond that. We, cannot, we can't fully fathom that, but that is his kingdom. And so his seeming defeat on the cross was an act of sacrifice to welcome us into his kingdom into his family, redeemed and righteous in the sight of God, not because we just lay down our coats, not because anything we can do, but because he laid down his life and he picked it back up again. You see, his victory wasn't defeating Rome because his fight wasn't against flesh and blood. 
His victory was over sin and his path from death to life, not just, not just from, from the desert to vegetation, but his path from death to life would leave death in the grave. And his kingdom was and is eternal, and he was and is a king. But as the martyr Stephen said just before he was stoned to death for his faith, we read this in Acts chapter 7. This is after the resurrection. Stephen is standing there, and he says, The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. He's like, listen, you can, you can kill me, but you can't stop the kingdom. And he's boldly proclaiming that. And then he quotes the word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 66. This is Old Testament. So he's going back. He says, this is what God spoke through his mouthpiece. Isaiah says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where's the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things as so they came into being? You see, the king of kings is not limited by our understanding. He's not constrained by our governance or restrained by the dimensions of nature. No, he set it into place. You see, Jesus is greater. Jesus is royal. Jesus is king, but he's a different kind of king. He's not here to overthrow the government, though the governments rest on his shoulders. He's not there. He wasn't showing up to demolish their physical enemies or, or fight their economical and social constraints. His fight was on a spiritual realm with eternal ramifications. And so the statement, Jesus is king, is absolutely true. The question, is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your king? Are you submitting to the lordship of Christ as evident by laying down your cloak? Like your property, your value, are you setting aside your preferences and comfort and ideals for Jesus to be made known? Are you laying down your view and perception of the world to take on a Christ-like view and perspective? Are you exchanging yourself for the sake of others? Are you decreasing in Jesus increasing. Jesus said, listen, there's none greater than John the Baptist. And John said, I, I'm not even worthy like, to untie the, the shoes. And Jesus, you want me to baptize you? But he said, behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And John's whole ministry was, was becoming less so Jesus could become more. What an example for us as we make Jesus our King, that we would decrease and Jesus increase. Jesus be magnified. That's what it means for Jesus to be king, for Jesus to be Lord. But that concept, we talk about often that this idea of Jesus being our Lord and Savior, it's a peculiar combination. Like if you really think about it, for Jesus to be both powerful and personal. I mean, the imagery of, of a good shepherd and a good king. They don't always go hand in hand being being majestic and mighty and caring and compassionate, but that's exactly who Jesus is. But, but I think, I think really it, it's rather easy for us to rally behind one side of Jesus, specifically Jesus as Savior. Like, like once we get past our pride, of course, because it absolutely benefits us. Think about it, like, like, like Jesus fight my battles, Jesus rescue me, Jesus save me. And, and listen, when you, when you realize that you are drowning, you reach for the lifesaver, right? And, and so it's getting over that of realizing I can't do this on my own. And then you reach out and Jesus in his mercy, he saves you because Jesus is savior. 
Jesus leans in and he extends his hand through his grace and his mercy and he invites you into freedom. And we hear that and we're like, we're like, yes. Yes, freedom and mercy and grace. Yes, Jesus is Savior. But Jesus is Lord? Like master? Jesus is shot caller of my life, is ruler. Jesus is king of me? It hits different. Because listen, I, I absolutely believe that, that um, it, it's, it's guys like me and, and we've done a disservice to presenting who Jesus is because we've, we've presented Jesus as an option to our lives. That, that, that we've presented Jesus as an ornament that you can kind of add on. He's part of your human portfolio and he can improve your life. And, and this is evident by the way that we plead with people. We get up here and we plead with people to accept Jesus. Just accept him. And I love the way that David Platt in his book, Radical, he describes this. He says, we have taken the infinitely glorious son of God who endured the infinitely terrible wrath of God and who now reigns as the infinitely worthy Lord of all. And we have reduced him to a poor puny savior who is just begging for us to accept him. Accept him? Like, like, listen, do we really think that Jesus needs our acceptance? Like, think about it. We, we've reduced Jesus to the likes of a child on a playground just, just begging to be picked for a kickball team. Like, give me a try. I want to be a part. I, I want to be welcomed in. I want to be part. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He doesn't need our acceptance. We need him. We need him. And, and, and friends, listen. Listen, Jesus is king. We need him. He has, he has all authority on heaven and earth. And to be clear, do not miss this. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you, but he doesn't need your acceptance. We need him and we need to magnify him. We need to submit to the kingship of Christ. And like I said, once you realize that you're drowning, you reach for that lifeboat. And Jesus in his mercy, he pulls you up out of the depths of your sin and brokenness and he saves you. And in that moment, we're so filled with gratitude. Many of us, we, we take that step of obedience. We come out of the waters of baptism representing resurrection. We receive the righteousness of Jesus. And we're so grateful. But then how, how soon after does Jesus hand us a paddle and we're reluctant to start rowing? because we wanna be captain. And we even think, well, listen, if I could just learn how to swim better, I can navigate life on my own. And Jesus is like, swim, I walk on water. Trust me, do this with me. You're invited in here. I, 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 cannot, I cannot communicate that enough that listen, Jesus loves you, but he does not need your acceptance. We need him. We desperately need him. And so what's that mean? for you to have a relationship with King Jesus, for Jesus to be your King. It means that we lay down our lives. It means for us to place our property, our being, all of who we are at his disposal, symbolic of cloaks on the road, even when we don't understand his ways. For Jesus to be King, we must honor him by submitting to his kingship and say, God, you've blessed me. I wanna use it for your kingdom. I wanna invite other people into this relationship with you. I wanna share the gospel because it's so good and people need it. 
They need it. And listen, once you've placed your faith in Christ, you become an heir in his kingdom. And God calls us children through Jesus and invites us into the courts, into inheritance, into the family. And then suddenly we have what Jesus has. We have the righteousness of Christ and then God no longer sees our sin, he sees his son and treats us as such. That we have unbridled, unrestricted and intimate access to the Father through Jesus. Listen, earlier this week I was sound asleep. Um, it was like 2 a.m., which is a good thing to be doing at 2 a.m. And I'm, I'm laying there and, uh, and I'm awoke, awoken, I was waking up by uh, my four-year-old son four-year-old son Beckett, and he's standing there, nothing but his underoos and eyeglasses on, right? And he's this close to my face, and parents, you know this moment, fight or flight, you're either gonna knock them out or like take just a second. And so I've had to learn that and condition myself and some laying there, and he's right here in my face, and, he, and he's shaking me. He says, Daddy, and I look up at him, and I see that it's my son. And, and listen, my son, my son has complete, unbridled, unrestricted access to come to his father in the middle of the night when he can't sleep. All of my children do, and, and I communicate that to them. Listen, if, if, if you wake up, you can't sleep. Listen, if you wake up, you've, you've had a bad dream or, 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 or you don't feel good or you need a drink of water or if you just wanna be with me, you can come. And, and I'm gonna do everything that I can, the best of my ability to make sure that he knows he's fully known just the way he is, he's fully cared for, and to the best of my ability that he's gonna be fully protected. And that is a picture of God the Father that King Jesus has shared and distributed his worth and righteousness and privilege and access to the Father that only his children have, that we can come in the middle of the night with our fears and with our anxiety and with our concerns, with our dreams or with nothing at all, merely seeking the Father's presence just the way we are. And we can know, we can be confident that we will be fully known fully cared for and fully protected because God is a good, good father. And Jesus is a good, good king. But is Jesus your king? And is that evident by the way you daily submit to Christ as Lord? Because then we come to verse 11 kind of wrap up this section here and Mark in, in, in his way, he kind of leaves us with the cliffhanger and we shouldn't be surprised that's his style, but we get to verse 11. It says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So we see this moment and, and it kind of ends there, this cliffhanger, it's kind of like nothing really happened yet because Jesus shows up, but, but, but it's getting dark and the sun is setting. And I love that moment because I believe it's, it's the humanity of Christ where he stands there and he looks around at everything and he takes it all in because he knows that thousands of people are converging for a party, but there's gotta be a funeral first. And he knows that, that the path he's taken from death to life, it doesn't lead to this throne on earth, it leads to a throne in heaven, but a cross is our access to that. That we will be invited into the family. And so we get this moment before Jesus begins to, to, to change the world for all of eternity where he takes it all in, knowing what's to come, knowing that he 
can truly fulfill. Hosanna, save us. Because he is both Savior, but he is absolutely Lord as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the weight of your word today. God, for the invitation into your family by submitting to Christ as Lord and Savior, as King. Father, as the psalmist writes, that that the stone the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Father, may we not reject Christ, but build our lives on him. God, may, may the shouts of our collective body here at Northeast proclaim, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. May, may we lay our cloaks down as we submit to the Lordship of Christ. Father, thank you for the unbridled access that we have to you through your Son. Holy Spirit, draw us, move us, and lead us closer and closer. And God, I pray all these things in the name of King Jesus.